0: You're listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing-McGarry. On Real Fiction, I talk with authors and journalists about the real and imaginary forces that fuel stories. Today's guest has just released one of the most anticipated novels of the year. I'll be back in a moment with novelist Kirsten Valdez-Quade to discuss her new book, the five wounds. My guest today is Kirsten Valdez-Quaid. She is the author of a new novel, The Five Wounds, just published by W.W. Norton. Her short story collection, Night at the Fiestas, won the John Leonard Prize from the National Book Critics Circle. Valdez-Quaid received the prestigious Five Under 35 Award from the National Book Foundation and was a finalist for the New York Public Library Young Lions Award. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, The Best American Short Stories, and The New York Times, many other publications. She is originally from New Mexico and is now an assistant professor at Princeton University. Joining me to discuss her new novel, The Five Wounds, is Kirsten Valdez-Quaid. Kirsten, welcome to Real Fiction.
1: Thanks so much for having me.
0: This novel has been one of the most anticipated releases uh, for 2021. It's a big, sweeping story with some eye-opening scenes that are set in small-town New Mexico. And it takes readers into the lives of the Padilla family, again, in small-town New Mexico, where we're introduced to an intense religious ceremony set in a place called a Morada, during Holy Week. And in these sort of early scenes, a main character, Amadeo, he's subjecting himself to sacred wounds similar to what Jesus Christ suffered during crucifixion. And I just mentioned that you are originally from New Mexico. I'd love to know where did you first learn about Moradas and tell us something about them and why you wanted to set your story in in, in this situation.
1: So the Morada is the physical building the space that these um, brotherhoods of penitentes use for their their worship. Um, I think most people from northern New Mexico are aware of penitentes. It's a lay Catholic brotherhood. Um, their worship can include physical penance, you know, some self-flagellation. Um, and, you know, if, if you spend time in New Mexico, you might know a practicing penitente or know someone who knows one. Um, it's, it's an old tradition that's still alive today, though um, in much smaller numbers now. Um, and the tradition dates back to the earliest Spanish presence in the region. It grew out of a real need in the community. When the villages were isolated, often um, one priest would be shared by many and so these brotherhoods filled in the gaps. Um, in the 19th century, membership roles could be in the hundreds, and they marked important dates in the liturgical calendar, um, as in the Good Friday procession that is still common. And they functioned as mutual aid societies. They were really crucial to the social fabric of the villages. Um, you know, the brotherhood that I describe in my in my novel is fictional. It's in a fictional, town. And it's pretty deliberate about having this one be fictional. I was drawing on the historical practices and some of the contemporary practices, but I wanted to make sure that I, this was not speaking for current communities.
0: Were Marathas or are the, the few that are left today, are they primarily frequented by men in the community are women permitted?
1: Yeah, I think I think women are. But it, it's it's a fraternal
0: organization. It is for men. The dynamic between Amadeo and his daughter, Angel, who is a teenage female, she is pregnant, and there is a scene where she was fascinated by what are you doing at this morada dad and can I see it? I mean, the Catholic
1: Church has a long history of excluding women from the most important um, central practices of, of the church. I remember being a kid and wanting to be an altar girl, and somehow I didn't realize that it was all boys up there. Um, and my mother had to explain that, no, I actually couldn't. Um, now, of course, there are altar girls and women are allowed on the altar, but that's, that's a pretty recent development. <laughs>
0: well, let me ask you about the father-daughter relationship that really uh, is a driving force in this novel, The Five Wounds. I have to say that as, as I was reading, it has probably the sharpest dialogue between two characters I can recall reading in a long time and there were times when it was so raw and then I'm also laughing a little bit so I hope I mean there's there's these moments of dark comedy when it just the most serious issues are unfolding so I want to talk to you about how you think about serious issues and humor when you're when you're writing but in this in this particular instance between these two characters angel is 16 years old she's pregnant and Quite often, she's the adult in this father-daughter dynamic. And I found her to feel wise beyond her years and rather empowered by her pregnancy. And she really didn't exhibit a lot of self-pity. So what can you tell us about creating these two characters and that that tension and and the humor between them?
1: I loved writing from Angel's point of view. Um, She's funny. She's sharp. She is observant. She passes judgment on the adults around her. And she's also incredibly vulnerable. Um, And this, you know, I don't think Angel is all that different from a lot of teenagers I've known. Teenagers see you, clearly. But, you know, Angel's been really let down by the adults around her. And at the same time, she needs them. So she's had to shoulder a lot of responsibilities from a very young age, even before she became pregnant. And, you know, that's this whole other massive responsibility that's bearing down on her. Um, but even as a young child, you know, with a single mother and, you know, taking taking over half the housework and, you know, being her mother's emotional support as well, I think her alertness um, is is really a survival mechanism um, she's she's bright and she's observant because she needs to be um, she has to take an account of of the situation around her but in her quieter moments mm-hmm. she's really plagued by by self-doubt I mean she she is conscious of acting as if she belongs and acting as
0: if she's okay you you mentioned that teenagers have this unique ability to really see you and then sort of put you right where you need to be. (laughs) So when it comes to the practice of religion and performance, Amadeo is seeking some uh, kind of a a rite of purity to kind of cleanse some of his, his problems and his past. And He really views it as, uh, let me test my limits, let me get through this purity test in the Murata during the Holy Week ceremony. And Angel looks at this with a great deal of doubt and says, (laughs) oh, come on, this is not a religious, this is not a religious rite. This is a performance. You just want to show off for us.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. For Amadeo, the central tension is between enacting his faith and the sense of, Pageantry um, for him, the line between the two is not clear, and you know his heart is in the right place when he decides that he wants to do the best possible performance of Jesus's passion. Um, he wants to transform his life. He wants to be a better person, and you know to leave the old Amadeo with his failures behind. You know, but his approach is wrong. His approach is once again focused on his performance. He's looking at himself. Um, he is the star of his own story, and he's not seeing the lives of the people around him. So yeah, Angel has his number. When she tells him, yeah, for other people, this is an important, meaningful religious practice, but not for him, um, she's she's correct. And, and that's a tension that I'm really interested in between public enactment of faith and and where it crosses over into pageantry. And, you know, and I've, I've felt that, you know, when, when I was a kid in, in mass and on the kneeler and having a sense of my own piety and really seeing myself from outside as this, you know, <laughs> angelic,
0: Pious child. Um, And obviously, like that is not piety. What I also found fascinating about this quest for um, piety and cleansing is that the matriarch of the family, Yolanda, who was in receipt of Angel's commentary about her father's pageantry, she said, Well, you have to remember that a lot of what happens in the Marathas keeps a lot of young men out of trouble. And I was Really fascinated by that—the sense of community.
1: Oh, absolutely! And I, you know, there historically there were times when the Catholic Church disavowed these practices. They—they. That's no longer the case. Um, Penitentes are welcome. The practice is welcomed by the the larger Catholic Church. Is it's seen as you know an absolutely legitimate way of worshiping, and I happen to find it incredibly moving. To You know, want to feel pain, to want to feel what Christ went through. That that has always struck me as a very empathetic form of of worship. So I just want to say that that it's it's Amadeo whose approach is extreme. I don't think you know as a practice it's necessarily extreme. But, you know, th- these religious communities, you know, of, of all kinds, fulfill many different functions. They are important socially.
0: They are important for social bonding. Let me remind listeners, my guest today is Kirsten valdez Quaid. She just authored a new book that was published by W.W. W. Norton. How did you write this book? I was really fascinated to, to learn that it started as a, a short story, and then your editor loved it. So much, and just felt that there might be more and more. Yeah. So my
1: editor emailed me um, a year after the story came out and asked if I'd ever considered extending it into a novel. And she was not then at, at, um, at that point my editor, and I dismissed the idea. I was working on stories. I was focused on my collection and. You know, I wrote a polite response um, saying, no, I'm done with that story. Um, But two years after the story came out, I was looking at um, these sort of half formed other stories that I was working on. And I realized sort of in a flash that all of these stories dealt with the same basic family constellation the same Ah, basic characters and you know in each of the stories they had different names and they were different ages and the settings were slightly different but essentially I I was writing um about the same family and I thought oh gosh maybe I'm still interested in Amadeo and Angel and Yolanda And, um, so at that point I, I had the summer without teaching and I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm just going to see, um, if, if this could go somewhere. And I spent that summer working on it. And at the end of the summer, I thought, okay, yeah, I, I could follow these, these characters.
0: How many years did you work on the full length novel?
1: I started at the summer
0: of 2011. So it's been a long time. That's impressive. Well, since you mentioned Yolanda, you know, I want to talk about her for just a moment. This is the matriarch of uh, a complicated family. All, all families are complicated and this one is no exception. There there is an illness that comes through early in the book. What I felt came through were just these amazing moments of family closeness and human failing as Yolanda's uh, health challenges play out in the novel. And, you know, I think when you're reading an intimate story like this, you do get a sense of one family, but you can see so much of your own family. And this is just a real universal topic that comes through. The, so Yolanda is uh, a character that I'd love to hear something about. And I, I felt that in late in the book, we see everything come together. There's a, there's a scene in a parking garage. What can you tell us about Yolanda and uh, what she wanted to accomplish in that later scene where we see so much emotion and human failing? So
1: the scene in the parking garage um, at the state capitol is sort of a, a key scene in the novel. Um, Amadeo has been trying to um, get his windshield repair business off the ground and it's not going well. And um, finally, he gets his first client, and his his mother has made this happen. Um, his first client is his mother's boss, and she's also the chief clerk of the state of New Mexico. So this is his chance to prove himself a success, yes. and you know, a, a successful businessman. Um, but he botches the job, and um, he. In that scene, he has to come face to face with his own failures and not just his own failures with windshield repair. But he understands that he hasn't seen something really crucial about his mother, that he's been so wrapped up in his own story that he's completely failed to see what his mother is going through. Um, they, you know, they have a very codependent relationship. She supports him almost entirely she bankrolls the windshield repair yeah. business and you know as this book progresses she her arc is really about living for herself and and paying it to, allowing herself to become the protagonist of her own life instead of just you know supporting her
0: offspring what we see through a lot of the characters in the story is that tension between doing things for yourself and relying on other people. And there is another key character, her name is Brianna. And she is involved with uh, young, uh, young women in this story, including Angel in a program called Smart Starts. And we get really deep insight into the rigors of training and teaching at risk youth. And Angel just idolizes uh, Brianna. I mean, she is, Brianna is part of her path and journey to uh, a secure life and training and uh, education. And Brianna says something, and this really stayed with me. She said, sometimes in life, people will let you down. It's it's important to understand that you didn't deserve to be let down. What did you learn about researching the social workers and the teachers that kind of serve teen mothers in underserved communities? My
1: mother is a therapist who's worked with teen parents. And I remember um, when I was a teenager myself flipping through um, a binder of the curriculum for this um, teen parent group she was running. And I was so aware of how much responsibility kids my own age were bearing. Later in my 20s, I worked as a grant writer at a social service organization that was focused on providing quality Childcare to children, helping to support families who were working. And I did a site visit to an alternative school for teen mothers, and I was struck by both the girls' youth and also by how seriously they were taking their their jobs as parents to these, you know, vulnerable little children. Mm. Um, you know, working in Social service organization. I've been really struck by the emphasis on helping families help themselves, connecting them to resources and changing the behaviors of the families. Um, And of course, it's important to provide parent education um, and, you know, resources, and that's all crucial. But the problems that keep families in poverty are societal problems. They are the systems that are working against um, families. And these are these are problems that we all bear responsibility for. One of the really tragic things is that even really successful social service programs um, can not last. The grant can run out, the funding stream stops, or the priorities of the organization shifts, and then the program just ends. You know, leaving leaving. People in the lurch, and I mean, this is where I get on my soapbox a little bit because we know that providing free or low low cost quality childcare is so important for children's development. It's so important for families. It combats poverty. It allows parents to finish their schooling and to work. Um, It combats deep historical inequalities and. Every child deserves it. And yet we as a society don't, we do not value
0: this. Uh, so true and brilliantly stated. And that leads me to uh, a question that I absolutely loved in this context. There is a scene where the, where the, the women in the, pro- the young women in the program have a homework assignment and they're told to choose a country um, to study how family policies are um, enacted in other countries, and two of the uh, the young women, Angel and her homework partner, choose Finland, and then we're treated to this presentation in the classroom about what they have learned about Finland, and this really served as a bit of a political awakening for young women who live in a small underserved community they thought wait a minute there, there are things that are done differently in other countries so the, the
1: homework exercises is intended to be pretty innocuous it's just to study families and child rearing practices in other countries and um, and the girls make you know they bring in the, the national cuisines of the of the countries they study and Um, but when they learn about Finland and the the social supports that are offered to parents and children, they suddenly see their own situation and their own community, um, anew. Um, it's, it's a sad scene when they realize how much is offered by other societies and, and how much they are denied, um, you know, the fact is that as hard as these girls try, as much as they practice their interviewing skills um, and learn healthy, nurturing, discipline techniques with their kids, they are facing extraordinary obstacles. And these are deep, structural obstacles. And, you know, our system isn't designed to support these girls as they work their way out of poverty and work their way into, you know, giving their children the best lives they can. So, you know, it's about their choices and their actions. But really, you know, in the face of so much inequality, you know, they can be making all of the best choices all of the time and still, still not make it.
0: For me, this book is just such an an exploration of vulnerability and finding a way to steady oneself. As you think about the big picture and the reader experience, what do you hope readers will take away from from this novel when they finished it?
1: Gosh, you know, I hadn't thought about the book as being about finding one's own steadiness, but I really love that. Um, you know, i had been thinking about it so much in terms of um, how families can help each other heal, how communities can help healing. Um, but you're exactly right that it is, it is also about (laughs) finding healing oneself and finding one's own steadiness. Um, I, I really love that. I hope that readers will be moved by the story. I hope they'll be entertained and laugh. Um, I really hope that they'll root for the characters, um, you know, who are, they're, they're flawed characters uh, who are just fumbling their way through. Um, but like I hope, all of us. <laughs>
0: like all of us. But I hope re-
1: re- readers will
0: be on their side. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's an amazing, big, sweeping story with multiple points of view. And I know that some of our listeners who have, they may have manuscripts in progress. They enjoy writing. They just enjoy hearing about the creative process. One thing that comes through on every page is a strong sense of place. I know I am in New Mexico. I know I am entering a world that I know very little about. Um, when you think about place, what what is your best advice for writing about place when you're when you're working on a story?
1: Place has always been so important to me as I write. I can't find my way into a story until I know where it's set. I need to be able to see the horizon and smell the air and, you know, (laughs) feel the moisture or not in the atmosphere. Um, Elizabeth Bowen wrote, nothing happens nowhere. And, you know, so every story takes place somewhere. It takes place in a context and that setting and social context are a part of the story, they are part of the pressures that are exerted on the characters. I see sometimes in my in some of my students who are just setting out on their in their writing lives this impulse to want their stories to be universal, and so they try to give as little detail as possible about the the world of the story about the characters oh, because they want every reader to be able to identify. But, you know, one of the paradoxes of fiction is that the more detail you give, the more specific the world is, um, the more vividly the reader can experience the world.
0: So, Kirsten, when you're writing a novel, do you go into it 100%, 24-7, or do you, um, do you schedule hours in a day and then teach a class? Um, this this is the part of the interview where I wish I could
1: um, give a different answer and, and <laughs> say that I am so disciplined and focused always. Um, you know, this novel took ten years. Um, but during that time, I finished writing and published my story collection. I published essays and we worked on other things. So I was not focused 100% on the novel. Um, It was always happening. Um, I would usually during the summers um, or over school breaks, I would really dive into it. I find that the writing goes best when I work first thing in the morning, when I disable my internet and lock up my phone. I have an actual um, lockbox that's got a digital lock on it, and I put my phone in there, and I feel such a sense of relief <laughs> when, um, when when I hear that lock engage, and mm. then I
0: can just settle into the work. I mentioned that you, you do teach writing at Princeton. Is there any other writing advice um, that you might share with our listeners? What do you tend to share with your students when they're starting out?
1: The the best piece of writing advice I've ever received was actually not writing advice. It was um, in a fourth grade art class, and we, the mother of one of my classmates came in to, to teach us some drawing. And she said, draw what you see, not what you think you see. And that's something that I continue to come back to when I'm writing. Um, Every emotional situation in fiction has its sort of obvious surface reality. So, you, you know, a character might feel happiness at a wedding or sadness at a death. But Every one of those situations is more complicated, and every character ex- experiences experiences these situations differently. So, when I'm writing, I have to ask myself: Is this really how my character is experiencing this moment, or, um, you know, am I just leaning on received ideas about how they would react? Uh-huh. Is it actually a more nuanced situation? Do I need to look more closely?
0: Kirsten, I can't thank you enough for joining Real Fiction today. This has been so fascinating and absolutely indulgent for me to talk to you after reading this incredible story. Thank you
1: so much for having me, Lori.
0: You've been listening to WERA 96.7 FM in Arlington, Virginia. This is Real Fiction. I'm Lori Messing McGarry. All Real Fiction episodes are archived on realfictionradio.com and your favorite podcast platforms. Thanks for listening.